Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Back on Thursday, August 11th, Twitter announced that it would begin enforcing its civic integrity policy in the context of the approaching U.S. midterm elections. A blog post marking the announcement described newly redesigned labels on posts containing misinformation. The labels, called prebunks, are intended to, quote, get ahead of misleading narratives on Twitter, and they work in tandem with information hubs to share state-specific information about elections. The company said, quote, Twitter plays a critical role in empowering democratic conversations, facilitating meaningful political debate, and providing information on civic participation, not only in the U.S., but around the world. People deserve to trust the election conversations and content they encounter on Twitter, unquote. Then came a whistleblower. Twitter poses a threat to national security and democracy. The CNN exclusive this morning, coming from a new whistleblower report. This is Peter Zacco. Until January of this year, he was head of security at Twitter, but now he's a whistleblower. And he says Twitter's security problems are so grave, they are a risk to national security and democracy. I think Twitter is a critical resource to the entire world. I think it's an extremely important platform. He's handed over information about the company to U.S. law enforcement agencies, including the SEC, FTC, and the Department of Justice. That's CNN correspondent Donio Sullivan who on August 23rd, uh, along with reporters at the Washington Post, broke the story that former Twitter head of security Peter Mudge Zatko had come forward as a whistleblower. Documents revealed by Mudge suggest that, contrary to its stated intent, Twitter chronically under-resources efforts to protect the discourse around elections on its platform, and that the problem is far worse abroad than in the United States. Leaders in Congress issued letters of concern, calling for investigations, and the Senate Judiciary Committee issued a subpoena for Zatko to testify next month. One of the documents Zatko revealed is a redacted version of a report titled Current State Assessment, prepared for Twitter by Alethea Group, a consultancy. The report describes, quote, the current state of Twitter's misinformation and disinformation capabilities, unquote, and identifies a variety of shortcomings in the company's approach to these problems. With regard to elections, it describes three key areas of concern including human resource issues, such as understaffing, organizational challenges and morale problems, a deficit of expertise, in particular on languages and cultural nuances necessary to mitigate threats outside the United States, and engineering challenges, such as substandard tools, the complexity of legacy systems, and concerns about security. The disparity between Twitter's packaged public communications on its election-related efforts and this relatively recent assessment of the state of things inside the company is stark and it highlights how hard it is to judge whether tech platforms are indeed making appropriate and effective investments in election integrity. In last Sunday's podcast, I promised an occasional series of discussions on the relationship between social media and election mis- and disinformation. In today's show, I'm joined by two guests, Spandy Singh and Quinn Annex Reese, who just did a deep dive into the issue for New America's Open Technology Institute, producing a scorecard that compares the policies and the performance of the tech companies on multiple dimensions. Their findings are summarized in a report called Misleading Information in the Midterms, 
how platforms are addressing misinformation and disinformation ahead of the 2022 U.S. elections. Hi, I'm Spandy Singh. I'm a policy analyst at New America's Open Technology Institute, and I lead our platform accountability work on content moderation, AI, and transparency. Hi, I'm Quinn. I'm a PhD candidate in American Studies at USC, and I was an intern with the Open Technology Institute at New America this summer. So before we get started looking at this specific report that you all published at the end of last month, tell me a little bit about your research generally there. Sure. So um, OTA has a pretty long standing history of working on platform accountability issues. Over the last few years, my work has really focused on examining how internet platforms are moderating content on their services, how their policies and processes are structured, and then how they're using AI and machine learning to curate the content we see uh, through newsfeed ranking, through ads, through recommender systems, and through traditional moderation. Um, And overall, our work is really trying to identify ways that we can push platforms to be more transparent and accountable in this regard, and to develop policies and practices that are equitable, fair, and that really align with sort of the broader spectrum of digital rights in this space. Quinn, what's your part in this work? In the past, OTI published an initial report about how 11 different internet platforms were addressing the spread of election uh, mis- and disinformation. And so as a follow-up to that, we published, worked on publishing the scorecard this summer. And so I was looped in to help do uh, the background research and writing of the follow-up scorecard. I suppose you could say the U.S. 2020 election was a disaster when it comes to misinformation and disinformation. Part of that is because, of course, so many Republican elites essentially supported the big lie that Donald Trump had in fact won. Do you think, based on your research for this update, that the platforms seem to have learned lessons from the 2020 cycle? Yeah, so I'm happy to talk about some of the specifics, and Quinn can definitely talk about the positive areas. But just as some context, like, I think 2020 was a really interesting moment from a process and policy standpoint, um, because although we had, you know, January 6th and many examples of how platform efforts to curb misinformation failed, I think it's important to recognize that the efforts that we saw in 2020 were actually a vast improvement from what we saw before in 2016. So, you know, pre-COVID platforms, when they were trying to tackle misinformation and disinformation, their efforts were frankly, like very limited. But when COVID started and we started seeing the very real offline consequences of COVID misinformation and disinformation, um, platforms really expanded the repertoire of interventions that they were using. And then the closer we got to the 2020 elections, I think there were major concerns, rightfully so, around voter suppression in communities of color, uh, the spread of conspiracy theories. And so platforms carried around many of those COVID interventions to the election cycle. Now, again, obviously not all of them were as effective and we still had January 6th and we still saw Stop the Steal sort of conspiracy theories continue to spread afterwards. But I just want to emphasize that there has been a fundamental shift. And of course, more is needed. Um, But just to give that context, I think is important. Um, And I think Quinn can sort of talk about some of the positive changes that we've seen. Yeah. So based on our research, we actually found that between 2020 and now, there's actually been a few positive developments in terms of how uh, platforms are addressing election mis and disinformation. So for instance, uh, all of the platforms that we evaluated have instituted policies to address the spread of election mis and disinformation in organic content and have instituted measures to either remove, reduce, or label this kind of content in order to limit its circulation. Uh, In addition, 
a majority of the platforms that we looked at offer dedicated reporting features that allow users to flag mis and disinformation when it appears on the services. And many platforms have either continued or expanded their fact-checking partnerships. So, you know, these really do mark major improvements and are positive steps towards instituting uh, comprehensive and clear mechanisms for detecting misinformation and also enforcing platform policies against misleading content and the accounts that spread that kind of content. One of the things that seems apparent is that most of the platforms manage their elections and civic integrity efforts in a cyclical or episodic way. At this point, they still think of elections as events that occur on a calendar. I mean, of course they are, but it seems that even in some of their public statements, they tip their hand to the idea that they're not following up on their civic integrity or election policies as closely in the off-season. Do you think that this approach is still appropriate, given what we've seen about the durability of some election misinformation? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned about it because I definitely think um, we've, like you said, we've seen many of these harmful narratives continue to spread. Um, One of the major gaps that I think relates to this that we found in the scorecard is that um, there's been really almost no transparency from platforms around which of their interventions worked and why they worked. And if they didn't work, what sort of subsequent changes they've been making. And I think without this kind of information, it's really difficult for us to hold platforms accountable, push them to, you know, implement interventions that are actually effective. Um, But it's also difficult to answer these kinds of questions about like which interventions are okay to roll back and which of them have to be permanent. Um, So I think without this kind of more engaged dialogue around data and impact, it's really difficult to make these kinds of determinations. And I think this issue around sort of uh, data transparency and impact is one that we see in the content moderation space more broadly. Um, and I think it's really important for us as researchers, uh, for civil rights groups, and for platforms and many others to sort of come together to understand like what are the actual data points that we want to see platforms disclose and in what format, like who's the audience for this? Is it just vetted researchers? Is it through a transparency report? Is it through an ad library? And I think, you know, that kind of multi-stakeholder dialogue is really critical to moving some of these conversations forward rather than it being kind of what it is right now where platforms say, here's what we're doing. And then everyone has to just kind of be like, okay, great. Um, Let us know how it goes. You've looked at as many as 10 platforms here, including some of the message apps, WhatsApp, for instance, and Snap. When you step back from each of the measures, are there platforms that you think are slightly ahead, at least from a policy perspective, and ones that you think are at the rear of the pack? I'm honestly hesitant to say that one is like ahead of the other. I don't know. (laughs) Feel free to jump in here too as well. I think that like Quinn mentioned, we've seen a lot of progress in that area of, you know, Uh, basic policies and principles for moderating content and fact checking and so on. But I think that, you know, aside from transparency, also, we've seen almost no progress in the advertising space. And I think, you know, we have seen that many platforms lack comprehensive policies that ban election misinformation in their advertising. We've seen, you know, many of them lack strong review processes for, um, taking down this kind of advertising. And then we've also seen very few platforms who have policies that prevent like super spreaders from spreading misinformation and disinformation. So while there is progress in some areas, there's no progress in the others. So it's really hard to say that one is ahead of the other because they're really lacking some key uh, movement in some key areas. 
Just a, a quick thing to add about the messaging platforms. And, you know, when I was looking into WhatsApp, I think the point that Spandy raised earlier about the kind of gaps in transparency and data, you know, WhatsApp is exploring some really innovative potential solutions around addressing the spread of misleading election information on their platform. And, you know, on the one hand, the nature of the, the encrypted nature of the services makes it hard for them to do uh, perhaps a full an analysis of the effectiveness of those measures, but without any kind of research or access to data, it's hard to know if some of those solutions are actually uh, making an impact. One of the categories where your scorecard essentially gives most of these platforms that you looked at at least a green, indicating that they do in fact have policies in this regard, is around moderating and curating misleading information. I did find myself reading this, though, and looking at it alongside a report from Advanced Democracy, which found platforms still rife with claims essentially calling into question the outcome of the 2020 election and wondering if there isn't just an enormous distance between having the right policies in place and actually being able to do anything about them. Yeah, definitely. Um, this has definitely been a huge concern um, of ours as well. It's been really great to see that platforms have developed these policies, but Again, there's been almost no transparency around the actual enforcement of these policies. Um, so in 2020, for example, we saw in the run-up to the election, platforms were continuously expanding or changing their policies in response to advocacy in the changing landscape. Um, but one of my biggest questions was, okay, but are you able to as quickly train your automated systems and your human reviewers to adapt to these changes? Are they able to enforce them the day that you announce them, for example. Um, and I think we see the same thing with ads as well. And it's important to recognize that moderation is never going to be 100% per perfect. There will always be errors. But again, it's important for us to be able to understand when are those errors happening and what impact are they having so that we can try and plug those gaps. Otherwise, we're kind of just at the mercy of platforms who will say, our automated systems are very effective. Don't worry, right? But it's our job to worry. It's our job to hold the platforms accountable. I want to ask you specifically about the video sharing sites, about TikTok, uh, slightly newer to the scene and obviously having to play a bit of catch up, but also YouTube, which on your scorecard is consistently, it appears at least, maybe slightly behind on having the pieces in place to meet the standard that you set out in this report for dealing with election information. I, I will say, like, I think that with TikTok, I've seen some really interesting approaches to tackling misinformation, disinformation. Again, I can't promise that they're effective because of the lack of data, but I am really intrigued by how, by how those uh, interventions are developed and what kind of sort of user research or other kind of research they've done, because I think they're kind of distinct in some ways from what we see on the other platforms. Um, in terms of YouTube, I mean, yes, you know, I think YouTube has received its fair share of criticism, both in our scorecard and just generally in the research community, um, especially because of the use of recommender algorithms on the platforms and how that can sort of drive polarization and, you know, push people down the so-called rabbit holes of misleading information. Um, but again, I mean, I think the biggest gaps that I see with YouTube are similar to many of the other platforms are in transparency and then around monetization and advertising. Quinn, I want to come to you and ask you a little bit about an offshoot of this report. It didn't quite make it onto the scorecard, but you looked at the universe of gaming apps, including games themselves, but also live streaming apps, places like Twitch, Discord. What did you learn about the role of election misinformation on these platforms? What's the threat there? Absolutely. Well, I was interested in writing the piece because online gaming platforms have 
been relatively underexamined within this bigger discussion and research about the spread of election myths and disinformation um, in online platforms. And at the same time, there are pretty significant indicators that online gaming platforms uh, may be equally as susceptible to false and misleading election information. So I just want to kind of flag two things to think about here. Uh, the first would be that, you know, recent research by civil society organizations has really shown that hate, harassment, extremism, and radicalization are growing issues um, across online multiplayer games. Extremists, you know, can exploit gaming platforms to radicalize users and, and spread extremist ideologies that can include things like uh, conspiracy th theories such as QAnon. And at the same time, the spread of extremist content can uh, contribute to and amplify uh, hate and harassment specifically targeted at women, uh, people of color and LGBTQ folks. And this really highlights the potential vulnerabilities that already exist within gaming platforms. And much like more traditional social media platforms that the, social, the scorecard looked at, you know, bad actors can exploit these vulnerabilities to spread misleading election information. The second thing just to quickly add here is that there are also some pretty unique aspects to the actual configuration of the gaming ecosystem that present some challenges to actually addressing uh, misleading election information. So the gaming ecosystem is actually made up of a couple general types of platforms. The first kind of category here would be distribution services like Steam and internet connected uh, devices, so like Xbox or PlayStation actual consoles that allow users to like purchase and download games, but they also often include built-in messaging or social, uh, social networking functionalities, right? That allow people to interact with one another. And the other kind of category are the gaming adjacent social messaging and live streaming platforms like Discord or Twitch that provide different kinds of in real time uh, interaction for gamers. The problem really though, is that this array of platforms within the gaming ecosystem mean that any given user's in-game conduct can actually be subject to three to four different platform policies. And this ends up creating a really complicated environment for both users and platforms to navigate. My children often game, message, and stream all at the same time. So I have some sense of that behavior. When you think, though, about the scale of the problem there, I mean, just for any listener that may not be familiar with these services, what are we talking about here? Do you think it is commensurate with a platform like Twitter? Absolutely. You know, the number of adult online multiplayer gamers in the United States alone is almost 100 million people, which is a little shy of a third of the overall U.S. population. And that sits in between the total US-based users of Twitter and Facebook, right? So right in the middle of those two. So that just kind of points to the potential scale of impact. And the other thing to note too, is that just as a growing and lucrative industry that researchers predict will be worth over $219 billion of revenue in the next two years. So I think that helps to kind of put into perspective the, the scale of what the potential problem might look like here. Spandy, I want to ask you, since you published your report, I suppose there have been multiple announcements by the platforms about more specific actions they're taking ahead of the midterm elections. And I notice in some cases they're crowing about their investments in this area. I saw Meta's Nick Clegg, for instance, throwing out a number, $5 billion invested in integrity efforts around the world. Do we have the baseline to know whether that's an impressive number or whether it's enough? No, I don't think we do. And I don't think we have the sort of details to understand where that money is going and whether it's actually being effective. Um, I will say that, you know, since these announcements have come out, um, they haven't really changed our 
perception of where companies need to invest more uh, resources towards. So the announcements have been great. It's great to see the platforms are thinking about the midterms, but most of the announcements have sort of solidified our understanding that there's been progress in sort of the content moderation policy area, um, but and like sort of sharing authoritative information about the elections, but they have not sort of filled any of the concerns that we have around advertising, monetizing, and transparency. So I think they're generally investing resources in these also important areas, but largely ignoring the other ones that also have fundamental consequences and are very related to platform business models and researchers' ability to hold these platforms accountable. You mentioned at the start that, of course, these platforms have made a lot of progress since 2016. And I think that's certainly true. There's a lot more effort, but there's also been a lot more pain in the meantime, and then accountability for them, including many trips to Capitol Hill. Do you think it's possible we're approaching a kind of point of diminishing return when it comes to the continued effort here? I mean, unless political leaders and influencers stop trying to spread so many misleading ideas about elections, that it'll be hard for the platforms to make a lot more progress? Um. I don't know if I would agree with that. I mean, I definitely, you know, hear the concerns around people at the top spreading misleading information, but it's not just that, right? Like there is also a vast population of just everyday users who are increasingly susceptible to these kinds of conspiracy theories and information and then are responsible for helping to amplify it. Um, You know, I think there's like an interesting conversation to have around whether platforms are the only people who are responsible for intervening. Like, should we be having media literacy classes in schools, you know, are there other sorts of community-based interventions that we can uh, look at? But, you know, just to Quinn's point around gaming, like, I don't think this is an issue that's going away. Like, when um, Quinn was doing his research, I was really thinking about how platforms are investing more in, like, AR, VR, and, like, the metaverse, and, like, really doubling down on, like, this is the next phase of the internet. And so many of these content issues will carry over into that space. And, like, Quinn was mentioning with this sort of environment where you have multiple platforms policies operating and governing how a user interacts all at once, um, these issues will continue to be uh, things that we have to think about. And so I think, again, it's really important for us to know right now, like what's been working well, so that when we theoretically reach this new phase of the internet, um, whenever it arrives, um, we are prepared with a good amount of information on lessons on what worked, what didn't work, and how we can make the future of this space more secure for users and for our democracy. Is this ongoing work for you or is it episodic? Do you expect that OCI will continue to produce this scorecard and have an update going into the 2024 cycle? Wow, that seems so far away. Um, I think, you know, generally we're thinking we've done a lot of research around what best practices in this space look like. So um, I don't know if there will be another scorecard in the run up to the 2024 election, but I think we will generally continue working on pushing platforms to adopt our recommendations and generally, um, you know, take a stronger stance at tackling misinformation and disinformation. I would just add that I think there's a couple of other areas of misinformation and disinformation that could be significantly influenced by what we're seeing right now. We like climate change, um, you know, and other kinds of categories and other forms of health misinformation. So I'd be interested to see, you know, if there are any learnings that are taken from this current era and carried on into those spaces. I think this baseline problem is a real problem. I found myself thinking that yesterday reading the Twitter documents, which is 
What is the baseline? How many employees do we expect them to have? What is the right level of investment? Right. Uh-huh. Or is it is it actually the number of employees or is it what they're working on and like how effectively they can work on it? And what are the measures and that sort of thing? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm split brained about this, even in my question. I do think on the one hand, it's natural that we would at some point reach a point of diminishing returns in terms of what these platforms can do in the face of perpetual influencer and political elite driven lies about how our election system operates. If 30% of Americans want to believe that the moon's made of chocolate, we're not going to be able to strike that off every user-generated platform. But on the other hand, I don't think $5 billion is an impressive number, Facebook. I think I that's why the like community interventions to me is like a really interesting space. Um, like I know that some of the big tech platforms funded like community-level trainings, for example, in countries like India, where their platforms are really having a big impact on misleading information, but they weren't happening at sort of like a scalable level. Um, And obviously, I think there are a lot of political sensitivities around teaching media literacy in a classroom in different countries, but I do increasingly think that this is not just a tech platform problem. Like they didn't come up with the concept of misinformation and disinformation that's been around for ages. Well, if there is a next round of this research, I hope you'll come back and tell me about it. So, Spandy, Quinn, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to Donnie O'Sullivan, and thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Press.